We are in Article 6 of the Baptist Faith and Message tonight, the article on the church. Articles 1 through 5 have pretty much put us square in the center of evangelicalism. Article 6 makes us Baptist. This is where we really separate out from most of the other denominations, is right here. Um, the word for the church that's most commonly used in the Greek New Testament and in the Septuagint talking about uh, uh, the, the assembly of Israel, God's people assembled together for his purposes, is the word ecclesia. And so if you're reading theologians, they will talk about ecclesiology. This is what they're talking about. They're talking about the doctrine of the church. The New Testament church is not the equivalent of Old Testament Israel. There's a difference. Um, Israel was under a different covenant. Same God, same overarching purpose in history, but now he has brought the new covenant into play, and we as members of the church are part of that new covenant. That means a few things. Because we're distinct from Israel, it means that when you're talking about the church, you can't just copy and paste the Old Testament. You can't just say, all right, whatever's true of Israel is automatically true of the church. Uh, we are not sons of Abraham, at least not physically sons of Abraham. We are sons of Abraham by faith, but uh, not physically speaking. We are not God's chosen nation among the nations. We are God's chosen people called out from all nations. There are similarities. There's a lot of overlap, but there are some differences. And so as we're talking about this doctrine, we have to be careful to make sure that we are translating the Old Testament to our circumstance properly. We can't just copy and paste, like I said before. That does not mean the Old Testament has nothing to say to us about the church. It just means that we have to make sure we're looking through the right lens and we're looking at things properly and not trying to mix things up or just import it over without adapting to who we are as unique people of God. All right? Having said all that, let's dig into what the article says. Article 6 of the Baptist Faith and Message starts like this. A New Testament church of the Lord Jesus Christ is an autonomous local congregation of baptized believers associated by covenant in the faith and fellowship of the gospel, observing the two ordinances of Christ, governed by his laws, exercising the gifts, rights, and privileges invested in them by his word, and seeking to extend the gospel to the ends of the earth. Each congregation operates under the lordship of Christ through excuse me, democratic processes. In such a congregation, each member is responsible and accountable to Christ as Lord. Its scriptural officers are pastors and deacons. While both men and women are gifted for service in the church, the office of pastor is limited to men as qualified by scripture. The New Testament speaks also of the church as the body of Christ, which includes all of the redeemed of all the ages, Believers from every tribe and tongue and people and nation. When I read this uh, article, when I started reading this article, I thought, well, I could go line by line by line. But then in the very first line, it gives within six words, five very important words. And so that would almost take our whole time just digging into just those five words. So I thought, all right, I'm going to need to go big picture here. I'm going to need to get the aerial view and give you guys the 30,000 foot view of things on this. So we are not digging into details as much as I want to, but I want to give us a big picture view of what the church is 
And I noticed that in, in this article, it really kind of deals with three specific questions. Other people break it up into five or six different aspects of the church or whatever, but, but I, I just want to focus on three basic questions, okay? Our first question, who is the church? Who is the church? I just said a second ago, we're not Old Testament Israel. Well, who are we? Who is the church? We are, right? But, but who, who, who are we? <laughs> Paint that a little bit. Or, as the eminent philosopher Cookie Monster once posed, who me am? Who are we? Who are we as the church? The first thing that we see is that we are baptized believers. This is what makes us Baptist. I mean, after all, our name is Baptist, right? It ought to have something to do with baptism, you know, the, the thing that makes us distinct. The thing that makes us distinct is baptism. Every other thing that kind of goes, goes along as a corollary to that. But baptism is what separates Baptist churches from everybody else. So let's set just a tiny bit of history here. Up until the early 1600s, if you were a member of a church, it was because you were a citizen of an area. Every church had its people as just citizens of that area. So you were born in Germany, you were a Lutheran. Congratulations. Unless you happen to be born to a Catholic family and then you were in, in trouble because Lutherans and Catholics weren't exactly best of friends. If you were born in Italy, there's no question you're a Roman Catholic. If you were born in Spain, you were definitely Catholic. If you were born in Egypt, you were probably Coptic. Ethiopia, you're like a, a, an Orthodox type. If you were born in a certain place, you took the religion of that place. England, you were an Anglican. You were, you were part of the Church of England. You are part of that church because you were born there. In other words, the church and state had a magisterial relationship where the state enforced church membership as part of citizenship. The two were not easily separated. Now, Baptists come along and they say, wait a minute. We don't agree with what the Church of England's doing, but we're not exactly heathens either. We want to find out what does the Bible say about church membership? Who it is that makes up a church? And when we read the scripture, we find that baptism is always, always, always mentioned in connection with faith. It's never mentioned before faith. It's always mentioned with faith or after faith. Wait a minute. What about these folks that baptize their infants? That's not scriptural. It, that, that is not what the Bible tells us to do. In fact, the Bible doesn't actually anywhere say in any verse, thou shalt baptize only believers. But time after time after time, we see individuals being baptized after they have faith in God. Philip and the Ethiopian eunuch is a good example. The eunuch's riding around, he's, he's, he's reading Isaiah, he doesn't understand it. Philip comes alongside him and says, what you reading? And he says, I, I'm reading this book, but I, I don't understand what it says. Philip says, let me see what you're reading. It's from Isaiah. He explains Christ to this man. A little bit later, they come down the road, there's, a, there's some water. And the eunuch says, what prevents me from being baptized? Philip says, nothing. So he baptizes the eunuch right there. What happened? He came face to face with Jesus Christ that was in the prophet Isaiah. Not even New Testament, Old Testament. New Testament is being lived out in front of their eyes, right? They're living the New Testament. But he finds Christ. He puts faith in Christ. And then he's baptized. 
We see it uh, uh, in, in when Peter goes to preach to the first, um, the first Gentile believers. You know, he's got that vision of the sheep with all the unclean foods, and God says, rise and eat. And he says, I can't eat that. That's all unclean. God says, don't call unclean what I call clean. Eat. You need it. Then he sends Peter to a man's house. And he preaches to this man and to his whole household, and they are all saved and baptized. The entire household. Now, I don't know. We don't know who all was in the household. But I imagine there were quite a few people there. Because the story tells us that he gathered a bunch of his family together. And I'm sure with a large-sized family, he's also got a few servants around. And he's got, he's got a few folks, that their neighbors, that are nosy neighbors. And they're curious. And they want to hear from this guy, too. We see faith and baptism hand in hand. What must I do to be saved? Repent and believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved, right? Almost every time that you you hear this language of baptized, immediately before it, you either see faith or repentance or both specifically mentioned. So we recognize, uh, the early Baptists recognize, hey, you can't do church just letting anybody and everybody that's a citizen be part of the church. The church ought to be people that have put faith in Christ and they demonstrate that faith by baptism. That's where this line comes from. In fact, the line, um, the line specifically, as it says in, in the article, actually wasn't written by our Baptist Faith and Message Committee. It was written by the committee that put together the New Hampshire Confession in 1833. These are, this is word for word what the New Hampshire Confession said. A New Testament church of the Lord Jesus Christ is an autonomous local congregation of baptized believers. We'll get to autonomous local congregation. Don't worry, that's coming. Okay, that part's coming. But I want you to focus right there, baptized believers. If you want to know who is the church, it's baptized believers. Now, specifically, we focus on the local congregation first because um, I want to say there's a hundred and, what was it? I read it this afternoon and I can't remember now. I want to say, it was a little over a hundred um, mentions of the word ecclesia in the Bible, okay, in the New Testament. Five of them have nothing to do with the church. It was just general general use kind of things. Either either it would be like an elected group, uh, like a, uh, a, a local elected group. It was used of that in common language. Or a couple of them refer to the Assembly of Israel as an ecclesia. But uh, of all the rest, 90% of the ones that apply to the church apply to a local congregation without a shadow of a doubt. And then most of the other 10% can apply to a local congregation or can apply more broadly. And so you, you see, the stress in the New Testament is on that local congregation. But who's part of that local congregation? Baptized believers. This is what separated us out. Instead of being the magisterial type of church that said, well, you're born in Baptist territory, so you're a Baptist. Instead of that, Baptists recognize that the true members of the church are the ones who have put faith in Jesus Christ and been baptized as believers We'll talk more about baptism next week as we get into the two ordinances, baptism and the Lord's Supper. But just know, that was the thing that separated Baptists from everybody else. That's why we're not Quakers. They came out of the same English separatism. That's why we're not Anglicans. That's why we're not Lutheran or Episcopalian or anything else. That's why we're Baptist. 
Because we recognize that that baptism is a crucial first step. And that baptism and that membership go hand in hand. But they both come after faith. Okay? All right? Baptized believers. That's who the church is. 1 Corinthians 1, verse 2. Listen to how the, the, the Paul, the writer of Corinthians, puts this. To the church of God that is in Corinth, to those sanctified in Christ Jesus. The two are synonymous. The ones that are sanctified are the church. Now, is Corinth a very good church? Well, in some ways, yes, but in some ways, no. We're going to read all kinds of problems in this book about Corinth. But he still calls them the ones that are sanctified. And now, who is it that's sanctified? Go back to Romans 8. Those whom God foreknew, he predestined, and those he predestined, he called, and those he called, he justified. Those he justified, he glorified. It's that sanctified... Sanctification is part of the process of salvation, right? So it's the ones that are already saved. It's the ones that have already put faith in Christ. That's who the church is. And that's why Baptists said you can't just baptize infants and let them into the church because they don't know what's going on. There's no actual choice being made to follow God. There's no faith being put in Christ by an infant. It can't happen. They're, they're just too young. It's nothing against them. God will protect them until the time comes that they can make that choice. Don't worry about that. But, but they can't make that choice yet. So, there you go. Call to be saints together. We'll go back to together. I'm going to stress that word together because, boy, we need it. We need together, don't we? Call to be saints together with all those who in every place call upon the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, both their Lord and ours. You actually see both sides of the, of the church there. You see the local congregation in Corinth, and you see the bigger, big C picture of the church. Those in every place call upon the name of the Lord. Not only are we baptized believers, who is the church? We're partners in covenant. Now, they use the word fellowship specifically. Um, local congregation of baptized believers associated by covenant in the faith and fellowship of the gospel. I don't like the word fellowship because that just sounds like we're going to eat and that's all there is to it. We're going to chit-chat and we're going to eat and we're going to have a good time and we're going to have to loosen our pants afterwards because we ate too much. That, that's not all that this word is. It's koinonia. It's the partnership. It's let's get our boots on and let's do this together. That's what we're talking about. We are partners and we partner together in covenant. We covenant together. This isn't just a loose association. This isn't just something where we just kind of come along for a little while while we're all kind of heading in the same direction and then, oh, well, this is my exit. i got to go this way. you got to go that way. See you later. And we're on our way. No, this is a covenant community. We covenant together. That's a legal term. Covenant. That's not a loose association. That's something that's binding. We're partners in covenant. Ephesians 2 plays this out. Every time I hit the button, it doesn't go, and then I hit it harder, and it goes twice. So then, you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. No, nobody's back there. Don't blame anybody back there. It's, it's all me. <laughs> fellow citizens, together. I'm going to keep stressing that together because we need it. Built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure being joined together, grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him, you also 
are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. And so we have this picture of these people who individually might be able to do a little bit on their own, but instead God has brought them together and partnering together in in covenant with one another, building each other up, lifting each other, helping each other along, strengthening one another. They're able to do far more than they ever could separate. That's the picture of the church. Who is the church? We're partners in covenant. Not only are we all baptized believers, that brings us into covenant, but now we partner together within that covenant. I mentioned that there's that two aspects of the church. There's the local congregation, but then there's something a little bit bigger. Not only is the church just us, the church is the whole body of Christ. It's the whole body. Now, some people talk about this in a couple different ways. I heard some people saying um, in, in their writings that the the church isn't is just a local congregation now. But in the future, when God brings us all to glory, he will establish that big C church. As if the big C church doesn't exist today. I, 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 don't, I don't think that's quite right. But then you talk, then you hear others, especially of the Roman Catholic bent, that will say that the local church is the whole church. That if you're not part of this church, you're not part of the church. There are some Baptists that do that. Landmark Baptists do this. They say that if you are not one of us, you are not of us. You're, you're, completely, you're completely doomed to hell because this is the only true church. We cannot think that way. There are people. It's going to surprise you, I know. But there are people in that church next door that are going to be in heaven. And that's a good thing. Can you imagine? What if the Bible said people from every tribe, nation, people, and tongue, except for yours, Boy, wouldn't that be great, wouldn't it? No. Every tribe, nation, people, and language, except folks that speak Russian. That wouldn't be good. That would not be good. Heaven would be less than heaven if it excluded people just because of their nationality, right? Heaven would be less than heaven if God said, you know what, I don't love those people enough to give them the gospel, but I'm going to share the gospel with the rest of the world. This is what makes the the history of Israel so interesting because Israel thought they were the people of God and that's it. God had no dealings with any other nations. The funny thing is, you know, when Israel is doing their job right, other nations are coming to God. Look at the story of Ruth. There's a whole book of the Bible named for a Moabitess woman, a woman who forsook her people to become one of God's people because of her mother-in-law. Now, I got to tell you, I don't know very many daughters-in-law that would tell their mother-in-law after all the husbands are gone, I'm not going to leave you. Your people will be my people. Your God will be my God. I don't know very many daughters-in-law that could say that to their mother-in-law. What an amazing testimony Naomi must have had before the life of Ruth for her to be able to utter those words. This is what I'm talking about. Even when Israel was doing what they were supposed to do in being the people of God, other nations were coming to. It was never about one people. It was about the entire world. That's why he tells Abraham, through you all the nations of the world will be blessed. How much more so is it true in the church, which is described in Revelation chapter 5 as being of every tribe, nation, language, and people. A great multitude. That's what heaven ought to be like. 
It's the whole body of Christ. We see it to come to play in a couple of verses. In Hebrews chapter 12, verse 22. But you have come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to innumerable angels in festal gathering, and to the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven, and to God, the judge of all, and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect. I didn't see any distinction there. I didn't just see the ones that were in Corinth. I didn't see just the ones that are in America. I didn't see just the ones who speak English because he's not making any distinction. Ephesians chapter 3. To him, to God, be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus. Surely he's not just talking about the church in Ephesus. Surely there has to be more to it than that. And there is. A little bit later in that same uh, letter, chapter 5, verse 27. It did it again, sorry. So that he might present the church... This is God talk. This is Paul talking about how much husbands should love their wives. And he compares it to how much Christ loves the church. He gave himself for her. He washes her with the water of the word. Verse 27, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor. Now, do you think he only cares about one congregation? Is he just going to die and go through all this trouble for just one group of folks? No, it's for every church. So who is the church? It's baptized believers. It's partners in covenant. It's the whole body of Christ. Another question. What does the church do? What do we do? I mean, I know. I know what we do. We come here on Sundays, and we hope that there's a pianist somewhere. <laughs> today, today we're lucky. Today we've got two. Two out of three ain't bad. Sometimes we're not so lucky, and we're begging around. What does the church really do? Well, that one sentence... By the way, that first that first slide that I showed that was all that was all one sentence. I break it up for each sentence with a with a break in between. Uh, that was all one sentence. That whole slide full of words. So we continue that one sentence. So it's it's a uh, uh, autonomous local congregation of baptized believers observing the two ordinances of Christ, governed by His laws exercising the gifts, rights, and privileges invested in them by his word and seeking to extend the gospel to the ends of the earth. So what do we do? Well, first, we worship through the ordinances. Now, we don't only worship through the ordinances. There's other stuff that goes on too. Acts chapter 2 gives us a good picture of this. Acts 2, verse 41. So those who received his word, this is those who had received the word of Peter, which was what? What was Peter preaching? This is, this is an easy one. What was Peter preaching? Maybe it's not an easy one. Gospel. He's preaching the gospel. He was telling people that Christ, whom they crucified, was risen as testimony to the fact that he was God's son. He's inviting them to put faith in Christ so those who received his word were baptized. Faith precedes baptism, right? And there were added that day about 3,000 souls. There's a connection. You're baptized, now you're added. Added to what? Added to the church. Verse 42, and they devoted themselves. What does the church do? They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. What were they teaching? The word of God. And to the fellowship. Koinonia. Not just, not just eating. Not just chit-chatting. But working together. To the breaking of bread. That's communion and to the prayers and the prayers. In other words, what did they do? They worshiped. They heard God's word expounded, explained. 
They devoted themselves to enacting the mission of God's church in his world. That great commission to go make disciples of all nations, that's what they were devoting themselves to. They devoted themselves to the breaking of bread, to sharing together, to to being the church together, and not just being individuals. They were all doing the same thing, but joining together. And to the prayers, to a spiritual vitality, both, I would imagine, both individual and corporate prayer are included here. We worship. Now, part of this involves the ordinances. Back in 41, new folks are baptized. Here in 42, they're devoting themselves in part to the breaking of bread. In other words, what they're devoting themselves to is to doing what God has commanded them to do. So if God has told the church to do it, the church does it. That's that's the way this works, right? And we know what God has told the church to do. He's told us, in part, to baptize, to make disciples, to remember his death until he comes. And they're involved in both of those. And they're involved in other things that that enable them to do the mission that God has called them to do. So what does the church do? It worships through the ordinances. Not just through the ordinances, but through the ordinances. Now, uh, we'll talk more about this next week. These are not sacraments. They are not the way that we become, but that we receive God's grace directly. You don't just eat a cracker a Jesus cracker, and now you got your fill of Jesus for three months. You'd have to be a big cracker. No, you don't just drink that little bitty cup of, of juice, and suddenly you're super Christian, flying around with a cape and kicking sin's rear end and taking names. That's that's not that's not the way this works. But I tell you what does happen: as you sit under the teaching of God's word, as you apply it to your life, as you take this communion. And as you watch people that you have been praying for, people that, that other church members have been praying for and sharing with, and, and as, you, as you watch them come through the baptismal waters and you watch their lives change and you watch Jesus get a hold of somebody and make a difference in their life, suddenly these ordinances do start to give grace because you are becoming more and more and more in tune with God's grace, not only for you, but for others. Oh, it's contagious. Once, once you start, once you get that baptismal wet, you don't ever want to see it dry. Once you start really experiencing genuine communion, you look forward to crackers and juice on Sunday. It's, it, because it's not just about the juice and the crackers, though we do use good juice. It's, it's about more than that. Not only do we worship through the ordinances, we use our gifts. 1 Corinthians chapter 12. Now, there are a variety of gifts, but the same Spirit. And there are varieties of service, but the same Lord. And there are varieties of activities, but it is the same God who empowers them all and everyone. To each is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. For to one is given through the Spirit the utterance of wisdom, and to another the utterance of knowledge according to the same Spirit, and to another faith by the same Spirit, to another gifts of healing by the one Spirit, to another the working of miracles, to another prophecy, to another the ability to distinguish between spirits, to another various kinds of tongues, to another the interpretation of tongues. All of these are empowered by the one and same Spirit who apportions to each one individually as he wills. That's God's doing a lot of work. See, when his church is doing what we're supposed to be doing, we're using our gifts. Some of you might have the gift of prophecy. Um, just if you, if you could 
just see to Saturday night and tell me what those lottery numbers are? Well, well, no, I'm kidding. I have no interest in that. I know plenty of people who do, but I don't. No, because what did he say in verse 7? Do you remember verse 7? I think it skipped over that verse. <laughs> sorry if it did. I'm sorry. To each is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. God has given us all these gifts, and as we use them, it does everybody good. Not just us. Not just me. I use my gift, and it benefits you. You use your gift, and it benefits me. And we build each other up. That's what the church does. 1 Timothy chapter 4, 4 verse 14. Do not neglect the gift you have. In 2 Timothy 1, 6, he says, fan into flame the gift of God. Don't, don't hide it under a bushel. Let your light shine. Don't put it off to the side and say, well, I, I guess one day I'll get a chance to use that. It's not like your, it's not like your pasta maker that sits in the corner uh, up top somewhere where you can't even reach it because you never use it because you probably forgot you had it until I said something about it just now. It's not like that. No, it, it's, the, it's the thing you ought to be using every day in one way or another. What else do we do? We spread the gospel. Come on, you had to know this was coming. Acts 5. Now many signs and wonders were regularly being done among the people by the hands of the apostles. They're doing all kinds of miracles and things and they were all together in Solomon's portico. Verse 13, none of the rest dared join them, but the people held them in high esteem. <laughs> There's a great big tension now. You got this growing movement. You got the religious officials that are against it. What's going to happen? Verse 14, and more than ever, believers were added to the Lord. Multitudes of both men and women. You see, when the church is doing what we ought to do, we're sharing Jesus. And we're not just sharing Jesus with other Christians. We're not just saying, oh, let me tell you what God did today. No, we're sharing Jesus with people that don't know him yet. Acts 13. Not only sharing Jesus directly, like, like we're going to go out and share. Now, there were in the church in Antioch prophets and teachers. Barnabas, Simeon, who was called Niger, Lucius of Cyrene, Menaean, a, long, a lifelong friend of Herod the Tetrarch, and Saul. This would be Paul. Okay? While they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. Then after fasting and praying, they laid their hands on them and sent them off. Here's the church, not only spreading the gospel by being the church in their community, here's the church sending off men to do God's mission for which he specifically called them to do. You see, there's more than one way to skin a cat, right? We can go share Jesus with everybody we know. How many of you know someone in, say, Colombia? Nigeria? I know a prince in Nigeria. He emailed me once. What about in Luxembourg? Anybody know someone in Luxembourg? Anybody? How many of you have ever been to any of those places? How are we going to get the gospel to them? If only there was someone going to Colombia, to Nigeria, to Luxembourg. If only there was someone going there. Someone that we could invest in. Someone that we could help to do the mission that they're doing. Oh yeah, missionaries. You see, there's more than one way to do this. God didn't say, all right, Crestview, you got to get the world saved. You know what he says? He says, I'm going to have my people doing my mission all over the place. How are you going to join in my mission? What, is, what are you called to do today? What can you do that will help my mission go forward? Yeah, we can share Jesus with other people. That is a vital component, and we need to be doing that every chance we get. But we also need to be supporting folks who can go where we can't go. Because the fact of the matter is, the gospel will not go out to all 7.6 billion or plus however many people there are 
with just us in this room sharing one by one. We need all the help we can get. Thank God the church is not just our church, that it's a much bigger church than just us. But we, that doesn't absolve us from the responsibility to go tell the people we can. You see the balance here? We're doing it, but we're also helping those who do it too, who do it where we can't, who go where we can't go. That's what the church does. We worship, we use our gifts, and we spread the gospel. Last question, who leads the church? Now, this one ought to be easy. Anybody know the answer to this one? Who leads the church? Anybody want to take a guess? Colossians 1.18. And he, talking about Christ, is the head of the body, the church. There you go. Not only is he the head of the body, he's the head of everything. Look at this. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. He's the head of it all. Jesus is the head of it all. But you know, Jesus doesn't always tell us whether we should get, whether we should spend money with this contractor or that contractor. He doesn't always tell us whether the carpet should be this color or that color. He doesn't always say whether we need to prioritize this certain project or that project. In other words, Jesus doesn't always, Jesus doesn't always give us the answer to every single question like that. So how does he lead his church? If he's not going to directly come down and speak in epiphany before all the members of the church so that everybody knows what the game plan is, if he doesn't, if a, a hand just doesn't come and write on the wall over here what we're supposed to do, how does he lead the church? Malcolm Yarnell wrote this, and I, and I think this is helpful. The New Testament church is ruled by Jesus Christ, governed by the congregation, led by pastors, and served by deacons. In other words, God takes his rule and he invests it into some individuals. Who? Well, might surprise you to know this, but you. I am not the head of the church. I'm not the neck of the church either. I don't get to turn the head wherever I want. Carrie loves that line from, I think it's like my big fat Greek wedding or something. Anyway, yeah. I don't have any say so in what God wants to do. Except through prayer, he shows me some things. But you know, you've got the same God and you've got the same kind of prayer and you've got the same access to God that I do. There's nothing special about this pulpit. I mean, it makes, it makes me a little bit taller than you. So I guess I'm a little closer that way to heaven, but I've got to be honest with you. God works through his members. God works through you. He doesn't, he doesn't just invest certain specific professionals with the job and say, all right, you're the professionals. I'm only going to talk to you. No, he doesn't do that. Thank God he doesn't do that. Because some of y'all are much better and smarter than I am at a lot of different things. And I need you because God speaks to you. God works through you. Baptist Faith and Message puts it this way. Each congregation operates under the lordship of Christ through democratic processes. There's been a little bit of a push lately to uh, go toward more of a elder-led congregation where just there's a board of folks. Baptists sometimes have this deacon board that'll do this. Um, I won't get into that. Uh, but they, they, there'll be some guys, some men that, that are generally recognized as leaders of the church that will make decisions on behalf of the congregation. Now, they may not do everything. Like, you know, if they're calling a new pastor, they're going to present that to the whole church kind of thing. But if they're trying to decide what, 
what's, what's the most strategic things we need to be doing in the next six months? They're going to kind of make that decision and, and go forward. And the congregation has vested in them that authority to be able to do that. That can be helpful. But we recognize that that's the church deciding to do that. There's no bishop above you, that, that above this church, that says, all right, Crestview, you've got to change the way you're doing things because you're not doing them right. If you go next door, Ken, over there, he was appointed to that church as pastor, but not by that church. That's just not how they work. In the Methodist church, there's a group that appoints pastors to specific churches. Now, sometimes they do really well. They get a great pastor in, a, in the church, and it's a good fit, and, and God does marvelous things through that. That can be a very effective way. It can be effective, too, because sometimes some churches just don't know how to pick a pastor. i got to be honest with you. There are some churches that are just all confused, and they're looking for, does he, does he look good? Does he speak well? Is he, is he a great, you know, is he, is he a great fishing buddy or whatever the case may be? And they're not looking for God's man. So sometimes something like that can be helpful. But we recognize if God has truly, if, if the church has baptized believers, they're all Christians, they all should be growing in their faith. If that's the case, then God can speak to what them just as well as he can speak to a board of a denomination as to who their pastor needs to be. In fact, if they are a priesthood, a royal priesthood in that congregation, they ought to be able to choose a pastor God's way. This is, this is something that makes us a little bit different. We don't have the board over us telling us what to do. We are the board. We get to make those decisions. Now, sometimes that doesn't work out to our advantage. It is really nice. It is really nice to have the balance between we're going to vote on things as a church and we're going to agree to do them. But, you know, we don't need to talk about all the details of this building project. Why don't we have one or two or three people or you know, just a small group of people that's vested with the ability to find out all the details, work out everything that needs to be worked out and just present it to the church. We'll, we'll spend five hours in business meeting trying to work out whether we should use, uh, whether we should use uh, eight foot two by sixes or 10 foot two by sixes on a project. Well, should we, should we go with this type of pine? Or that type of spruce, or this type of oak, we we get caught, we get bound down in the details. It's good to have someone that has some of that authority, but at the same time, the church has not only the right but the obligation to say, "We're going to make sure we're doing things God's way." And that's what he's talking. That's what they're talking about here when they say this. But that doesn't mean you can just run the church in the ground and not do what God wants you to do, because in such a congregation, each member is responsible and accountable to Christ as Lord. So you're going to make those decisions. you got to be held responsible for them. Sorry. <laughs> now, who leads the church? You do. There are a bunch of different examples of this. Just very quickly, let me give you a couple. Acts 13, we just read it. Who was it that set apart Barnabas and Saul for God's work? Well, originally God did, right? He called them to that work. And he, but who did God tell to set them apart? Did he say he told the pastor of the church? He told the members. He told the whole congregation. How would you like that? Everybody hears from God at the same time and it's all the same thing. Boy, that would be amazing, wouldn't it? You know that happens when you're listening to God, though. Acts 15, there's a kind of a trial, so to speak, 
So people have used this passage to say, see, see, there ought to be some leadership over the churches. They, they all went to Jerusalem to have this council in order to figure out what to do about this problem. So they recognized a hierarchy. Well, who was it that voted in that Jerusalem council? The body of believers that were assembled there. It wasn't just the apostles. The apostles were there and they were speaking and they were considering various sides of this. Paul was there. You know, you know he was speaking what, his, what was on his mind. But who voted? Everybody. Matthew 18. Jesus says, this is how you do things. A brother offends you. What do you do? You go to him first. Then what do you do? You bring some witnesses. Then what do you do? He won't listen to you. You bring them before the church. And the church deals with him. You hear what's going on? It's the responsibility of the church. It's not just a select few who make the decision to kick them out. It's the church as a whole that sees what's going on. And yeah, there's a process to get to that point, but who? And what does God say about that process? Whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. In other words, I'm going to work in this process and you're going to be doing my will. I mean, he uses Urim and Thummim. Don't you think he can use a bunch of spirit-filled believers too? I do. 1 Corinthians 5, there's this guy that's committing this, these heinous acts. Paul says, you need to discipline him. But who does he talk to? Is he talking to the pastor? Is he talking to the deacons? He's talking to the members, the whole church. Christ leads through his members. He also leads through the officers, the scriptural officers of the church. It's scriptural officers are pastors and deacons. Um, while both men and women are gifted for service in the church, church, the office of pastor is limited to men as qualified by scripture. Acts 20 verse 28 says, pay careful attention to yourselves and all the flock. He's talking to, he's talking to the pastors. He's talking to men that are set apart as, as officers of the church. He says, in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to the care, to care for the church of God, which he obtained with his own blood. You're not my church. You're his church. And boy, howdy, I better be very careful what I do in leading you. We don't have time to look at this in depth, but Acts chapter 6 gives us a beautiful picture of how it works. So let me just kind of briefly describe the scene for you. The disciples are increasing, and as they're increasing, a new problem becomes apparent. There's two different groups in, in the Jerusalem church. Okay, This is describing the church in Jerusalem. There's two different groups. There are the Jewish believers, those that came out of Judaism, but there are also the Hellenists, those who were Gentiles before that have come to accept the gospel of Christ. They're both there, and the Jewish believers, they have widows. The Hellenist believers, there are widows, and some people are complaining because the Jewish widows are getting plenty of food but the Hellenist believers, the believers that, that, that are the widows of the Gentiles that have come to faith, aren't getting their fair share. I don't know if they weren't getting none, or if they were getting very little, or, you know, it, when, when it didn't run out, they got some, but sometimes it ran out, right? I'm not exactly sure specifically, but they're being neglected, is how the scripture puts it. So what do they do? The disciples call everybody together. And they said, you know, we don't need to pre we don't need to give up preaching God's word just to serve tables. Now, is that high and mighty talk? No. They recognize their priority. 
God has given them a mission. And to step aside from that mission to do something that's good would be bad because they have a better calling, a higher calling. That doesn't mean, doesn't mean serving tables is bad. No, making sure these widows have plenty of food to eat, supporting them and caring for them, that is entirely in keeping with God's word, but not when God's called you to focus on just his word. These men were set apart for a specific mission and they recognized we can't do our mission that God has given us and do this too. So what's the solution? They say, pick out seven men who can do it. Get some men who will make sure this happens. Okay? Who picks the men? Who picked the men? Well, God did, yes. But how? Who do you use to pick the men? Members. It's the members. You brothers pick out these seven men. So they did. We will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. We're going to do the mission that God has called us to do, but we want to make sure this gets done. So pick out some men who can make this their mission. Pick out some men that we can appoint, men that are full of the Holy Spirit, men that will do a good job with this task. Seven sounds about right. With the number of widows you've got, it seems like seven men ought to be able to do this. Maybe one a day. They They might have alternated days. However you're going to do it, pick some men that will make sure this happens. But we're going to make, we are going to focus on the mission God has given us. So what do they do? They did it. They chose Stephen, a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit. They just said, pick seven men who are full of faith in the Holy Spirit. The first one is full of faith in the Holy Spirit. The others are too, by implication. They, this writer just didn't write that seven times, but they all are. Philip, Prochorus, Nicanor, Timon. Arminius and Nicholas, a proselyte of Antioch. So they pick out the seven men. You know, funny thing happened. These guys pick out their seven men and then they set them before the apostles and they prayed and laid their hands on them, officially appointing them to the task at hand. Who's doing the appointing? Well, ultimately God is, but how is he doing it? Not through the members, through the officers, through the leaders. God has used both members and leaders working in concert together to make sure that his will is being done. And the result, verse 7, and the word of God continued to increase. That's what the apostles were doing. And the number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem. That's what the members were doing. They're working together and God is giving them an abundant increase. A great many of the priests, even the Jewish priests who had been fighting so hard against it, even they are falling like dominoes and coming to faith in Christ. By the way, the next verse, you know what happens? Stephen wasn't just feeding widows. He was preaching the gospel. Some folks got angry, brought up false accusations against him. Chapter 7, he lays out his case. Doesn't help that he calls, uh, uh, let's see, what did he call him? I know he called them hypocrites, but there was something else he called them too. Sorry. You stiff-necked people, uncircumcised in heart and ears, you always resist the Holy Spirit. That does not help you uh, in a legal case. (laughs) But it was the truth. And he died. Saul approves of his execution. And then he starts persecuting the church. The church begins to flee. But as they go, they go. They preach the gospel. They make disciples. And now the church isn't just in Jerusalem anymore. It's in Judea and Samaria. Pretty soon it's going to be reaching out towards the ends of the earth. Father, we thank you that you have given us a church. The Little Sea Church, the the local congregation, 
plug in and serve one another, to use our gifts and spread the gospel as we can, to help one another, build one another, worship together, to be partners in covenant with other baptized believers. God, we also thank you that it goes so much farther than us. It goes through every believer, past, present, future. We're all one in your spirit. So, Father, lead us. Lead us through our membership. Lead us through our officers. Help us in, as pastors and as laymen, as teachers and as students, as grandparents, parents. Help us wherever we are in our life to be led by your Holy Spirit to do the work of your gospel in your world for your glory. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.